The fifth principle, principle of focus. I do a lot of traveling overseas, um, and I'm with a lot of churches in other countries. And in a lot of those countries, particularly in the less progressive countries, um, they will come. They will come in droves to hear the American Christian speak, because they've been online and they've seen online our churches, and online our churches look amazing and extraordinary and spirit-filled and doing huge things and the, and God-sized. They look like that online, and so these. These Christians will come in droves to hear me speak, not because of who I am, but only because I'm American. They just want to hear my accent. That's, that's really it. And, and, but the interesting thing is, one of the first things that I always want to tell them is, don't look to the American church for your, for your way of doing church, because in so many ways, in my opinion, the American church has lost its focus on where it's supposed to be. Principle of focus will get us there. Here's the, here's the principle simply, simply stated. My focus should be on Christ. It really, it's that simple. It's real simple to say. It's something that we all know intuitively. It's something that comes off of our lips really easily. And yet, when you look at how we do what we do in the American church, in so many instances, it has little to do with Christ. It has a whole lot more to do with other things. Uh, and, it, and that changes from one generation to the next. Um, my generation made, in, in the American church, my generation, the boomers, we made the church look like corporations. And we built huge ones. We built the biggest churches ever built. My generation did. We're very proud of that. The mega church. That was my generation. That was, that was boomers who did that. We did it using corporate strategies. Corporate growth strategies. And we turn the church into a corporation. And that's not what it's supposed to be. I'm watching with great interest what Gen X is doing in the church. They're very relational oriented, and so I love that, and I'm very excited about that. But Gen X uh, is, is pulling a lot from boomers, and they're trying to pull a lot from millennials. And they're, uh, they're, they're struggling with some of those decisions, and I'm, I'm watching with great interest to see where they end up. When I look at, at the millennials at the church that they are ushering in, it's going to look completely different. They're going to do what the boomers did. Gen X is a good generation. They're a, Gen X is a rule-keeping generation. Boomers, not so much. Millennials, not so much. Boomers redrafted everything. We re-envisioned everything. We said to our parents, Y'all are ignorant, and you don't know anything about church. We'll do this. That's what we did. And we did that with everything else in culture. Millennials are doing the same thing. Millennials' attitude is, nobody older than me understands anything. We're going to completely reimagine. And that's not necessarily bad. There's a lot about it that I'm very excited about. But let me tell you one of the bad things about it that, that I can already see beginning to develop. Because my generation has done so bad with social justice issues and with feeding hungry people and, with, and trying to institutionalize all of that rather than just going out and doing it, 
Um, the millennial generation of church is really going to be heavy on that. But I'm worried about doctrinal purity in that generation because there's an element of that generation that thinks that feeding hungry people is all there is to ministry. And there's a lot more to it than that. Jesus didn't feed hungry people just to get them fed. Jesus fed hungry people in order to make them followers of him, in order to share the gospel. There was a reasoning behind it. So anyway, I'm getting on my soapbox here. Focus, uh, I, I think we struggle with focus. I think we struggle with focus in the American church, and part of it is because we aren't persecuted. I think if we were persecuted more, we would, we would feel more of it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And then Philippians chapter 4. Uh, I've already referred to this in passing uh, earlier this morning. The, the, the problem going on in the Philippian church between Euodia and Syntyche, between these two women who we know nothing about. We don't know anything about these two women. They may have been good, godly women. They were church women. That's all we know. And I know you, you probably can't even imagine that two church women could be fighting over anything. But... Apparently they were. Here's the thing. Um, We don't know what the fight was. But you're going to run into them in heaven. And the only thing you're going to know about them is, oh, you're the one who, oh. I mean, forever and ever and ever, their names are in Scripture as having couldn't get along with one another. That's all we know about them. They may have had sons or daughters who went on to be huge church leaders and, and influential Christian leaders. We don't know. But, but for some reason, these two women couldn't get along. And Paul, sitting in a prison 100 miles away, hears about it and writes a letter and calls them out by name. I've heard what's going on with Euodia and Syntyche. Church leaders, here's what you need to do. And then verses 3 through 9 of chapter 4 of Philippians, he gives this beautifully crafted prescription for dealing with conflict in the church. It is a beautiful explanation. And he, and he, and he said stuff that, that you've heard before, but that you didn't necessarily tie to church conflict. We've already talked about one of them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's about church fights. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's about church fights. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. That's about church fights. And the very last word that he gives is such an interesting word about church fights. He says, finally, dear brothers, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is just, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. See what he's saying there? In the midst of your fights, fix your focus. Get your mind and your thoughts and your hearts and your eyes where they ought to be. Now, when I talk about, uh, when I talk about this particular principle, the principle of focus, um, I, I, I talk a lot about um, where our focus ought to be. Fill in this first blank with me. Even in the midst of conflict, the role of the church is to show people Jesus. The question is, how are we doing? 
And when I talk about focus, I, I think in my mind a lot about, uh, you've heard the illustration of the buzzard and the hummingbird. The buzzard and the hummingbird flying side by side over the exact same desert, right? Side by side, buzzard, hummingbird, flying over the desert. They look down, they're both looking down on the desert floor, and the hummingbird sees nothing but desert flowers. And the buzzard, looking at the exact same desert, sees nothing but dead carcasses. Why is that? Because it's what they're looking for. It's what they've trained their minds to look for. And they will find what they're looking for. And so I say to people in the church all the time, if you come to this place, gather together for worship, looking for the problems in people, looking for the flaws in, in your leaders and in the other people in the church, you'll never be disappointed. You'll always be able to find that. Always. But if, if you come here and gather together and you expect to meet Jesus here, he will meet you here. And he'll do it in unexpected ways. You'll hear him in worship. You'll hear him in the music. You'll hear him in the sermon. You'll, you'll, he'll, he'll jump off the page at you when you open your Bible. You'll, you'll meet him in one another. If you come with an expectation of actually meeting Jesus, he will meet you here. And so... Focus is that. That's what focus is all about. And, and, and the Christians in Antioch, where Christians first got called Christians, they understood this. That, that term Christian that we use regularly now, in fact, it's, it's almost come full circle. It only took 2,000 years for it to happen. When it first started off, that was a derogatory term that the community came up with. Christians didn't come up with the name Christians. The community in Antioch came up with the name Christian in the same way that we came up with the name Harry Krishnas. Right? It's, it was a name that, we, that they were called. People were pointing to them saying, those people are crazy. The, the, the name, the actual word Christian is a weird word. It, it's got three different elements to it. It's got a Greek and Aramaic element and a Hebrew element to it. And they were all merged and crunched together. They were doing that to language back then, just like we do it today, right? And they came up with this word. Those are just those Christians. Those crazy, crazy people that are so on fire. They're so radical when it comes to that guy, Jesus. That's all they ever want to talk about. You, you, you stand in line with them at the post office and you want to complain about how much the stamps are, uh, are becoming and they just want to talk about Jesus. And you sit down next to them on an airplane and you want to have the, the regular conversation you're supposed to have on an airplane. Are you leaving home or coming home from home? Is this business or personal? They want to talk about Jesus. And you're standing in line with them at the HEB and you can't believe how expensive eggs have gotten and they can't believe you don't know Jesus. They just want to talk about Jesus all the time. That was the Christians at Antioch. And it was the community that, that, that coined that term Christians. It was a derogatory term. And then for 2,000 years, it, it got better and better and better. After, after the Catholic Church came along, they kind of commanded uh, that it be a good term and that it was a good thing to be called a Christian. And then we, we brought it through with the, with the Protestant Reformation and it was even a better term to be called a Christian until about 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And now all of a sudden it's not so good anymore to be called a Christian. And we're getting back to where we're supposed to be probably. 
I don't even, I'm embarrassed to call myself a Christian when I look back at what those Christians in Antioch were about. That's focus. That's what focus is about. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to be all high and mighty and spiritually minded. I've heard people say he's so heavenly minded that his feet don't, he can't even take logical steps on the ground anymore. He's no good to the world. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be able to connect and relate. I'm just saying that once you began your faith journey with Christ, once you got your fire insurance in place, so to speak, if the only reason for being a Christian is that we get to go to heaven when it's all over, then why are we still here? What are you doing here? I mean, God left you here for something, for some reason. And it's not just to make that mortgage payment. The reason, the reason we're still here as believers is because there is work to be done. We are all God's masterpiece. He crafted and wired each of us in a special way in order to do good works in the name of Jesus. That's why we're here. And so uh, finding, a, finding that purpose and finding that, that mission in life and being Christ-centered in all of our relationships and everything that we do, that's what focus looks like in the church that Jesus had in mind. Ultimately, filling in the blank, despite all our programs, buildings, and ministries, the church has only one product to market. Grace. The relationship with Christ. Grace. That's our, uh, I don't know if you guys, any of you are marketing people, you follow Seth Godin. That's, that's our purple cow in our market. Your purple cow is in marketing terms. That's whatever you do that nobody else can do. What do you do that is unique? What do you bring to the marketplace that only you can bring? For us as a church, grace through a relationship with Christ. We can feed hungry people, but compassion ministry will do that better. It will. It already does it better than the church. We can build houses for homeless people, but Habitat's got that nailed and they're going to do it better. Those are things we should be doing as church. Don't get me wrong. We should be doing those things, but the one thing we can do that nobody else can bring is grace through a relationship with Christ. That's our marketable, our marketable product. Do we really understand that? And are we really doing what we do with that idea in mind? That's what we have to bring to the marketplace. Um, there are things that distract us. Uh, I'm not going to get into them deeply. I'm just going to touch on them quickly. Uh, there are some examples. There are a lot of things that distract us. And, and if we wanted to, we could probably fill the next 30 minutes just talking about how distracted is the American church and what are the things that distract us. But in Scripture even, there were things. Circumstances sometimes distract us. Matthew chapter 14, that, that story of Peter walking on the water, and as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was doing fine, right? He wanted so badly to walk on the water to experience the supernatural power of Jesus, to share in that. That's what he wanted. And he stepped out of the boat and he was getting it and he was doing it. But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and became fearful of the circumstances and the wind and the waves around him, he fell. 
And that happens in the church as well. If you begin to believe, if you begin to believe what the, what the media is telling you, the fear mongers in the media, if you begin to believe that and begin to take your eyes off Jesus and begin to look at what's going on in the world around us and become fearful and anxious, then you will become ineffective as a Christian. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. We're supposed to be a non-anxious presence in the world around us. That's, that's who we should be as Christians. Another thing that distracts us sometimes is relationships. And I know that that sounds weird coming from me, the, the relationship guy. But I do think that when I talk about this, I'm talking about envy and jealousy. I'm talking about, I'm talking about um, when someone in the church says something like this, and forgive me if you've said this, but I hear this from time to time in churches. How come, how come the same people always get to do that? How come I don't ever get asked to do that? Um, how come my job can't be that? How come I can't be on that group? How come no one's ever asked me to sing a solo in church? How come no one's ever asked me to pray? And, and that, comes from, that comes from the same place that the disciples were in an arguing about as they were walking down the road arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That comes from that same place. I want, I want my piece of the action. I want to be recognized, too, for something. Um, and, and, and I think what, what the calling is on us as Christians is figure out what Jesus has given you to do and then get about doing it. Don't worry about whether anyone notices or not. There's a guy, uh, I won't tell you his name, but there's a deacon at my church. He's, he's in his 80s now well into his 80s now. Not very many people know this, but uh, our, our early service is at 8.30. The pastor has a 7.30 prayer time for anyone who wants to come on Sunday mornings. At about 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. every Sunday morning, this 80-something-year-old man comes up to our church, and he walks around the perimeter of our church, and he prays, and he picks up trash. Cigarette butts, little bitty that just picks it up, cleans it up. We've got a custodial staff at our church. But that's his thing. That's what he does. And he's been doing it that I know of for probably 20 years, maybe more. I just love that. To me, that's the picture of what a Christian is. I don't care who notices what I'm doing. I don't need that. I just know this is something God's laid on my heart. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go do it. That's what it looks like. That's what a Christ-centered focus looks like. We get distracted sometimes with the mechanisms of how we do church. We get distracted by religion. We get distracted by the we've-never-done-it-that-way-before mindset, the trappings and traditions of religion that we can't even remember why we have those traditions, and no one else can either, but we've just always done it that way. And when we start messing with that, we get all bent out of shape, and I think we need to be careful about that. I have some really funny stories I could share with you about that, but I'm not going to take the time to do it, but you probably have your own funny stories about that, getting distracted by religion. So I wanted to share one last uh, quick, uh, interesting scriptural story with you, and then we can talk together. Uh, John chapter 5, the Pool of Bethesda. This question the question that church leaders always should be asking is, what should we be doing as a church? Now, that's an important question. What does God call on us to do? 
Um, within a five-mile radius of this place, in any direction, you could probably find virtually every dark, evil brokenness of this world. I guarantee you within a five-mile radius of this church, you will find sex trafficking, you will find drug addiction, you will find prostitution, you will find depression, mental illness, you will find everything that's broken about this world within a five-mile radius of this church. So when you guys come together in a strategic planning session and ask, what is it that God wants us to address? How in the world do you choose? How in the world do you know? What are we supposed to be addressing here? I mean, we can't help all those people. What should we be doing? There's a story in Scripture. Jesus is walking in John chapter 5 towards the pool at Bethesda. Interesting pool. It was built around some colonnades, and there were probably several pools around it. And, it, and there was a, an old wives' tale uh, that said that every once in a while, a spirit of God would come down and stir the waters. Who knows? Maybe it was true. I don't know if it was true or not, but it would come down and stir the waters. And whenever that happened, the first person that would get in the water could be healed. And so with that wives' tale out there, this pool was literally cluttered with crippled, ill, sick people every day, all day. Hundreds, probably. At least scores, I would probably guess hundreds of people gathering around this pool every day. So when Jesus is walking with the apostles, with the disciples, towards this pool, as disciples, we're all thinking the same thing, right? We're all thinking, oh, buddy, this is going to be huge. This is going to be the biggest yet. All he's going to have to do is snap his fingers or blink his eyes or whatever he wants to do. He's just going to say, be healed. And a hundred people are going to get up and walk and they're going to be healed because he can do that, guys. We know he can. He's got it in him. He's got the power in him to do that, right? So we get there and Jesus looks around and he walks through the crowd and steps over and around some and goes up to one guy and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy doesn't even answer that question. The guy says, I've been this way most of my life. Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. You're healed. And then he leaves. And he leaves a hundred crippled people who could have been healed behind him. Just as broken as they were when he came. He leaves. How do you feel about that story? Does that bother you at all? I'm just going to say, I'll, I'll say it. It bothers me a lot. It really bothers me a lot. How did he know? How did he know who to heal and who not to heal? Why didn't he stop when surely there were crippled people around him who knew who he was? Who were yelling out, heal me, heal me, and reaching out and grabbing for him. And he walked right past all of them, heals one guy and leaves. How did he know? Compare that. Compare that to the story. Because you, you might think, well, he, you know, he, he was, he was going to go do his one thing. He was focused. He didn't lose focus by the people around him. But then you compare that to the story in Luke chapter 8. Where again, he finds himself in a crowded place moving through a crowd, and Jairus, one of the town's leaders, comes up to him and says, 
my daughter is sick and needs your help. Jesus says, let's go. Let's go help her. And he begins to walk through this crowd towards Jairus' daughter. Again, same situation. He's got his focus in mind. He's going to go heal. But then, for some reason, one of the people who reaches out to touch his garment causes him to stop and he turns. And for a moment anyway, Jairus' daughter is just going to have to wait. And he turns and he addresses this one woman and he heals her. And I don't, I'm just a guy, listen, I'm just a disciple who tries to figure out patterns, right? I'm just trying to learn Jesus by watching how he does what he does. And what am I to draw from the fact that in one crowd he won't be bothered by it and he leaves them all needing him and doesn't do anything except for one guy. And in the next crowd, he does allow himself to be stopped by someone who's reaching out to grab him and says, Jairus' daughter is just going to have to wait. I just don't get it. Where does this focus come from? How does he do this? That's what I want to know. And to answer that question, you have to go back to John chapter 5 and read a little bit further down in John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus says. It's in a little bit different setting, but it actually answers this question. Jesus says, the son can only do what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does. What Jesus is saying here is, I wake up, I spend time with my Father, I start walking through my day, and where I see God at work, that's where I go. And I do. And where I don't see God at work, that's not for me. It may be for someone else, but it's not for me. So how does a church, back to our original question, how does a church know in the middle of all this human suffering around you, what are we supposed to be doing? And the answer is what Jesus just showed us. Fill in this blank with me. The key to Christ's extraordinary focus was extraordinary prayer. The key to a church's extraordinary focus is extraordinary prayer. We've lost our focus in the American church because we've lost, in so many respects, our passion for gathering together and praying together. I don't know anything about your church's prayer life, and I don't know anything about your gathered prayer time. I don't. I don't know anything about it. My guess is that there are a whole lot more people who are technically a part of your church than who are here for a gathered prayer time. A.W. Tozer says it this way, when God is the only spectacle to draw people, don't expect a crowd. We don't gather together and pray with passion because we don't really believe it'll change anything. Really. If we did, we'd do it. If we thought our gathered prayers will bring a cure for cancer, we'd do it. If we thought our gathered prayer would have that kind of an impact in the world, do it. We don't really believe it'll have that kind of an impact. Not really. And the reason we don't really believe it is because we don't really have the kind of focus 
that the New Testament church is called to. But when we do, in those pockets around the world, and I will say even here in the United States, in those pockets around the world where people really are believing that, there are huge God-sized things happening. And when two or three of them gather together, they really can ask what they want in His name, and He will show up, and He will do it. Our power, our power, our supernatural power as a people of God depends upon our willingness to come together and get on our knees and pray and seek His face and have that kind of an extraordinary focus. That focus gets us through, will take us through successfully most conflicts that come. But if we don't have that focus, we will be divided. Principle of focus, the principle of accountability, the principle of perception, the principle of the enemy, and most importantly, the principle of the spirit. That's the structure that God designed when in his wisdom he decided we're going to have a whole new age in, in creation. We're going to call it the age of the church. These are the principles that it's built around. And they mean everything in terms of our effectiveness as a church.